All right, four o'clock. And with military precision, we will uh, start our economic summit. So thanks everyone for joining us, everyone that's here today. We're extremely excited about uh, our guests we have that we'll all introduce here in a second. However, before we get into Andrew's presentation, I want to spend about two minutes just uh, telling you a little bit about a question that we often get asked when it comes to economics. If that's what we're going to talk about today, how the economy did this year, what we think it's going to do next year. Us as a firm, and, and really any firm you talk to, any investment firm, they all come at the world from a worldview. Now, you should hopefully know ours, ours at Whitaker Myers. We come at it from a biblical worldview. The first and most important idea in economics when you come at it from a biblical worldview is that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then he created man, and of course, he created them male and female in his image. And then God gave a command to mankind to fill the earth and subdue it, to exercise dominion over the creation. And that, my friend, is what all sound economics is built upon, exercising dominion over the creation. Why? Because it shows that man was made to interact with the earth and that man is made because of his relationship with God, because we are made in God's image and God is a creator. And because we are made in his image, we are a creator as well. Now, we're not a creator like God. We're a sub-creator. You could call us that. And, and, of course, God creates out of nothing just by uttering the word, let it be, and it is or it was. Mankind, however, is a sub-creator. We take things that God has created for us, the resources that God has blessed us with, and we take them to a higher level. We lift them up. We take them from a lower value to a higher value. That's exactly what Genesis 128 was talking about when it says, be fruitful and multiply the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over every living thing that moves on the earth. And because we're made this way, God gave us this mission of making the earth more fruitful. God has also given the earth a mission of responding to that, of being receptive and opening its hand to that subduing that's happening. And if you don't have this as your worldview or your baseline in economics, which we would, I would argue most modern economics does not, you tend to underestimate the ability of mankind to be productive when entering various forms of enterprise. Now, why is that? Because you'll miss the fact that the earth creation and humanity, which, as we've discussed, was made in God's image, run on the same software, the software of God's creative intelligence. We were made to work together. We are compatible. It's not like who's got an Apple and a, and a, and a uh, Windows. They're not always compatible. They give you a lot of headaches. We were made compatible with this earth. And that's why we shouldn't be surprised when things like mathematics, artificial intelligence, scientific advances, whatever Elon Musk is doing next is probably on the cusp. We shouldn't be surprised when these things exploit the opportunities on the earth. Even though they're man-made creations, they work so well. Well, I'll tell you this, it's only a mystery if you leave God out of the equation. When you put God back in the picture, you understand that the earth is made to respond to this. So, and I'm almost done here, <laughs> Andrew, but think about crops. You know, crops create and then multiply, and they multiply even better when man cultivates them. Dave Ramsey talks about this in Financial Peace University, which for the sake of time, I won't go through. But he talks about how when man cultivates, we take things to a higher level. But to use a biblical language, you could say man makes yielding that naturally happens yield even more. 
And the greatest yielding that man ever does, man meaning male and female, is to multiply the earth. From their relationship comes new generations, and this might be one of the greatest ideas in economics. The source of creativity and productivity in the earth is a creation of new gen generations. The best economics book I ever read talks about demographics equal destiny. A new person is more than just a mouth. They are the hands and the minds that can all make us more productive. And when this happens well, it can vastly exceed the expectations of even the greatest economic economists on the earth. Even though human life is more important than e the economy or economics, we only doom ourselves when we don't value human life above all else. And those of us in Ohio have a very important decision to make tomorrow around that. Now, this doesn't always work well in God's design. We don't get straight line economics. You, you don't go down this path and, and, and get everything being perfect. And, and um, that's a lot of what Andrew's gonna review for us today. But we thought it was important to point out and to note to begin this webinar that you as our clients and our potential clients understand what it means to have a biblical worldview when it comes to economics. Now, we are so excited to have Andrew as our speaker today. Andrew is a senior economist and member of the First Trust economics team. And Bloomberg has ranked them as one of the top forecasters of the U.S. economy over the last few years. And we have them here with us today. That's amazing. Andrew is responsible for analyzing economic indicators. He writes economic commentaries. He produces articles for the, for the blog on First Trust, which is a great place to go read data on e the economy. Andrew regularly presents economic commentary to different financial professionals, CFA societies, the Financial Planning Association, FPA, and uh, all, all over. And I've even had the pleasure of sitting with Andrew one-on-one -on -one a few times, and he educated me uh, well beyond probably what my brain could comprehend, but he did it in a way that was very fun and easy to listen to. Andrew also provides research and analysis to their chief economist, Brian Westbury, who you may have seen on Fox Business or CNBC, as well as their chief market strategist, Bob Carey, and their first trust CEO, Jim Bowen, who's an excellent person to, to, to listen to. And uh, they had a um, survey that was done of all financial advisors. And these financial advisors, including us, ranked First Trust, their thought leadership material as the number one to read and share by, by most of us financial professionals with either ourselves or our clients. So Andrew, the only bad thing about Andrew is he got his MBA from Northwestern University. He didn't go to the great Ohio State University, so he has to sit through a bad football game every year when they play the Buckeyes. But other than that, he got his economics degree from Hoax College. He's a CFA uh, designation holder, and he's a member of the CFA Institute. Andrew, without further ado, Take it away, my friend. Yeah, absolutely, John Mark. Thank you for the very kind introduction. Yeah, and I love those words that you started with. As we sit here, and we're going to have a conversation on economics, I'm going to break this down really into three parts. I want to talk, one, about where we are from an economic standpoint, where we are battling things like inflation, the Fed raising interest rates. We're going to talk about if the Fed is battling inflation for longer, and we've got these higher rates for mortgages, higher rates for cars, higher rates to borrow and invest in the business, uh, we're going to talk about that question, are we prepared for it? But we're going to finish up uh, kind of on a similar line to what John Mark started with, what drives us over time, and that is we as, as humans, a lot of times God made us in his image, and then we complicate things. We, we look off into other areas. We try to do things for ourselves. A lot of times we try to be the solution ourselves, uh, but the talents that he's given us, the benefits, the, uh, the, the gifts that he's given us are really what drives us over time. And we're going to end looking at an example of that as we head towards Thanksgiving, as we head towards the celebration of Christmas, the things that we can look at, reflect on, 
think about during times of difficulty and times of abundance uh, as a reminder of how good God is. Now, let's, let's start with the Federal Reserve. This is a question, if you've turned on the TV, turned on the radio, opened up the newspaper in the last 24, 36 months, right, there's been so much discussion about the Federal Reserve, about what's happened with inflation, which was supposed to be temporary, right, and proved to be much longer lasting. As we went into this year, a lot of people were hoping we would know whether or not the Fed's job was done, whether they could get inflation, they were hoping by the end of this year, down to 2%, uh, and whether or not the rate hike cycle could be finished. And I want to explain to you why this has been such a challenge for them. Why are they having such a difficult time getting inflation down to where it needs to be? And, and part of that comes down to the fact that we don't have perfect vision, right? We don't have the omniscience. When we went through 2020, come back with me to those, those months, okay, the painful months, March and April of 2020, when we weren't sure if the grocery stores were going to be open, we weren't sure if Starbucks was going to be open, right? As a reminder, this is when we had the great toilet paper run of 2020, and there's, you know, some people still working through that stock. I'll include my parents in that. But after that two-month time period where this immense uncertainty of what was to come, and despair was running high. This this feeling uh, of Armageddon was upon us, right? During that time period, we knew we would ultimately progress forward. We knew that while we didn't know how long it would take, we would emerge from COVID as we've done with so many things in the past. This too will be temporary. But there was this question of what was that growth going to look like? And in the second half of 2020, we emerged into a different world from what we had seen in 2019. Think about what you did during the second half of 2020. By the end of that year, we were back and spending at new highs. By the end of that year, we were spending more money as consumers than ever before in history. But were you taking trips? Were you getting on the airplane and going to visit family for the holidays? Were you uh, going out and, and going to the restaurants? Were you staying at hotels? I think for the vast majority of people, the answer was no. On the service side of the economy, this is what we moved away from. There were restrictions, shutdowns, still shelter-in-place orders in some places, right? So what did we do? We moved from the outside, inside, and the inside online. We moved from this world uh, around us, this service-based world. We moved towards goods, and this was the Peloton phase, okay? This was when we said, okay, if the gyms aren't going to be open, let's bring the gym to us, and Peloton surged because, of course, everybody was going to buy a bike or two and put it in their basement. Everyone was going to work out and leave COVID healthier than they'd ever been before, and that remember, lasted for about three weeks until most of us realized we don't like cycling, right? But during that time period, we had to make some adjustments in the economy, not just domestically, but internationally, to respond to where our capabilities, where our capacity was. During this time period in 2020, when the world was coming to us, and we were getting deliveries at our home, or we were working on the fences, we were working on the back decks, we were, whatever that may be, we started shifting uh, workers. We moved them from those places that were closed, and a lot of those were small and mid-sized businesses. They lost the employees, they lost some of their investment dollars, inventories, investments shifted over to this other side of the economy, which traditionally was smaller, but during that time period, it was necessary. And in 2020 into 2021, it's, it's a little hard to see on this chart, but we saw spending increase by a trillion dollars on the good side of the economy. And this, this unexpected shift 
Okay, as these companies brought the workers over, right, we were setting ourselves up unknowingly to a degree at that point in time. We were setting up ourselves for difficulty in transitioning back as the checks finished. Okay, if you go back to September of 21, after the last stimulus check went through the system, we were reaching this point where with uh, vaccines and comfort levels, people were getting back out. They were getting back out on flights. They were getting back out to the service side. You could see the recovery was underway up here, but this side over the last two years has consistently come out and said, we still can't get employees. We cannot get enough workers. The demand has returned. Our, our consumers have returned, but our workers are stuck down on this side of the equation. When we manipulated the economy, uh, this unwinding has not been so smooth. Now, what's really interesting to me, okay, is we also have this conflict going on between the Federal Reserve trying to get inflation in check and what we're seeing out of Congress, out of Washington. Here's what I mean. You, you notice here that goods has been relatively flat for about the last year and a half. And if we dive down and specifically look at their activity. There's a group called the Institute for Supply Management, ISM. They go out every month and talk to uh, dozens of manufacturing companies, and they said, hey, how is business going? How, how are orders? How is production? How are your inventories? Are you able to get the inputs you need? Are you able to get things out to your customers? Okay, and they compile all these answers and are basically uh, answering every month, what is the state of manufacturing in the U.S.? And when this number is above 50, as it surged after COVID, they said, look, things are absolutely booming. We needed manufacturing, we needed production during that post-COVID period, right? This number absolutely surged, and then it started to turn over. Again, it started to turn as we got back towards the service side over the last year, right? Over the last year, we have been in contraction on the manufacturing side, and their new orders, which is the most forward-looking indicator, right? That has been in contraction for over a year. So it's a little surprising to a lot of people to hear that at the same time that activity is down and people said, well, maybe now manufacturing, some of those employees will shift back to the service side. At the same time that's taking place, construction and manufacturing is more than doubled, okay? Over this time period, they've been in decline. And, and part of the reason, the major reason for this, is we've had stimulus coming out of Washington, the Inflation Reduction Act, uh, which has done very little to reduce inflation, the CHIPS Act. There are activities happening. There are plants that are being built in the United States. Ohio has been a central hub of this. There's uh, new factories that are going in. And so these businesses are saying, look, our activity might be down right now but I'm not ready to let go of my employees because what's gonna happen when my building gets completed, when the new chip facility comes online, when the new battery facility comes online, I'm gonna need to hire people back. And I just watched what happened with the UPS where their, their drivers went through and got one of the biggest gains in history from negotiations, the United Auto Workers. Just got one of the biggest rises, uh, pay hikes in history over the, the, the strikes. And they said, look, we, we don't want to risk that, so we are kind of holding on to employees. So this, this, despite the fact that this side has flatlined and this side is where demand is at, and a lot of cities feel this because, again, the small and mid-sized businesses for the last two years have said this is our number one concern, they're having a hard time transitioning back. Okay? Again, we manipulated the, the, the system. We manipulated how we were interacting and getting back to where we were has proven difficult. Now, getting employees, we are up today. We have more people working than ever before. Okay? We're up about 4 million workers. We lost 22 million jobs 
21.9, million jobs in two months in March and April of 2020. It was an absolutely devastating time period on the jobs front. Over those two months, we, we lost two and a half times the number of jobs that we lost during the financial crisis. That, that in and of itself, a very difficult downturn. We brought those back and more, but the pace of this is kind of moderate. It's, it's hard to bring new workers in that be fruitful and multiply. Population growth is a major driver of production over time. It's why this year India is gonna surpass China. And I think over the next 10, 20, 30 years it's gonna surpass China from an economic growth perspective. It's the reason that China's really struggling right now. They went with a devastating one child policy that has now turned them over uh, and they're going to struggle, but there's only so much we can do to bring workers back in. And there's a demographic kind of evolution happening here in the United States right now. We're reaching that point where the 55 and older demographic, the baby boomers, are getting deeper towards that retirement age or into retirement. This is going to be a little bit of a tougher run here over the next you know, two, three, four, five years in terms of getting in new workers. So the competition is intense amongst those that we can find. So here's where we stand on the inflation front, okay? Inflation is off the peak. Yes, that's the good news. It's still stubbornly high. And I'll tell you, they thought here in 2020, into 2021, they said, look, by the end of 2021, we're gonna be down to 1.7% inflation. Instead, at the end of that year, we were at 7.0. At that point, they said, look, we got one of the numbers right. Okay, we might have had it in the wrong spot, but at least we got one of the numbers. Last year, they thought we were gonna be down at 2.5% inflation. We were still closer to five. This is not an easy piece to solve. What they really felt was going to be the driver, this turnover in goods, free up the supply chains, get the resources to where they need to be to free up the ports, okay? It's been replaced in the inflation pressures by the service side of the economy. And so here we stand, okay, you know, where are we on inflation? We're moving in the right direction. Will the Fed need to raise rates any further? They may be completely done with rate hikes, but that doesn't mean that rates are moving lower here in the next three, six months. I think it's going to take them a little bit longer. They're going to have to keep rates a little higher for the foreseeable future until they can get this number down towards that 2% target. Now, second question we had at the beginning, are we prepared? Are we in a position? Because if you turn on TV, you may have seen things like this. Consumer debt as it is, is at or near all-time record highs. Now, that's usually the case. Let me note that's usually the case with population growth, with inflation, with prosperity, right? We're typically moving up in this direction. But you're going to hear on TV, hey, we, we were at peak uh, we were at peak debt going into the financial crisis. Are we at the risk right now of seeing a repeat of 0809? That that big recession, okay, an 0809 recession, a COVID type recession, is the major fear for a lot of people. Well, I don't think we're going to see that. And here's why: if you break down the details, where is the debt? Well, the biggest growth has come in mortgages. This is very important, right? The reason that the mortgage growth being the driver of the debt is important is, is think about what's happened with mortgages over the last three, four years. Of late, we saw the 30-year mortgage get to seven and a half, eight percent but how many people do you know that have a seven and a half, eight percent mortgage? What happened and where a lot of this growth took place was in that 2020-21 timeframe when the 30-year mortgage fell below three percent 
right? A lot of people refinanced. The people that were buying were able to afford more home. Uh, they were able to take on more debt because the amount they had to pay month in and month out was lowered for each dollar they borrowed. The growth here was actually done in a relatively healthy way. Now, there are other categories. I will tell you there are some problems in autos, okay? Right now, the average monthly payment on cars in the United States is about $750, which is a big number. And there are people that are underwater on cars. They bought in 2020 when you were paying new car prices for used cars because we didn't have the semiconductors. We didn't have the vehicles available. There are going to be some pockets in here, okay, where there are some difficulties. In fact, auto delinquencies are already hitting points that are above pre-COVID levels. But we have to take this in the broader picture. This is not something in and of itself, right, that is, is going to take down the U.S. economy. Where, where are the other pieces? Credit card debt. It's up a little from where it was at historical levels. Default rates are still relatively low on credit cards. If we look at student loans, student loans are at all-time record highs, and those repayments started in the last month. They started in October. The combination of these three will put some pressure on consumers. I would expect we'll see a slowdown on some discretionary spending, things like leisure and travel. Uh, they may pull back from that, but the question of whether or not they are overextended, here's how I ask that question. Are they, uh, have they, has consumers in general put themselves in a delicate position where these higher rates that they maintain is going to push them into a very uncomfortable spot? The number I look at is called the financial obligations ratio. And if you didn't go to money banking and credit class, here's what that number means. It's asking what percentage of your after-tax income Think about this as the direct deposit, the money that goes into your account when the checks are paid out. How much of that money goes to pay for what we just talked about, the house, the car, the student loans, the credit card debt? Right now, the, the monthly outlays from the income is around one of the lowest levels we've seen since they started recording this data back in the 1980s. And some of that is structural changes. Think about, again, housing being a major driver. If you go back to this time period, 2000 to 2005, one of the major reasons this number was trending higher is because during that time period, about 45% of mortgages outstanding were adjustable rate mortgages. So as the Fed was raising rates to try to dampen economic activity, to slow things down, it was directly impacting raising the cost of consumers to make their monthly payments. Now, less than 5% is adjustable rate. And when you start looking at some of the other categories, consumer incomes have risen. This is one of the amazing things. When you unleash human uh, potential, when you allow us to use the gifts that God gave us, when you allow us to, to, to dig deep, learn from those who came before us, uh, to, to generate ideas, to use things in new ways, to use innovation. We've grown our, uh, our, our incomes. We've grown our capacity for leisure. We work fewer hours today. We work fewer, uh, fewer uh, hours in back-breaking labor. Consumer incomes have increased substantially. And while we do have pockets of debt issues, right, in general, the consumer today is in pretty good shape. I'll be honest, I'm not that concerned that even if rates stay a little bit higher, we'll see fewer home sales, okay? But broadly speaking, I think the U.S. consumer is going to do just fine. What about businesses, okay? Business debt is at an all-time record high. Now, uh, John Mark mentioned you may have seen us on CNBC, uh, Fox Business, some of the others. The last time we were on CNBC, and maybe the last time they'll ever have us on CNBC, was in December of 2019. 
Okay, and we got in a fight with them over this chart. It was at this, it, before the rise right here, we were right in this last time period before you see the number jump up, and they said, look, hey, we're going into this COVID thing. This is December of 2019. We had COVID showing up in places like Europe. It was showing up, obviously, in China. We had not really seen it domestically. There hadn't been a shutdown, anything like that. They said, are you worried that if COVID hits, the U.S. is going to collapse because businesses are overlevered. And we said, well, you can't just look at debt. You have to understand the broader picture. You can't just look at the debt that's out there. You also have to look at the assets. You have to look at the income. And they said, no, 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 no. we're not talking about that chart. We're talking about this chart. And look, debt is at an all-time record high. And we said, okay, but you also have to look at this chart. And they said, fine, well, look at your chart. It goes like this. And that, you know what? That looks a lot similar to this, this. And they're like, okay, they're very similarly shaped charts. And yes, they're similarly shaped charts, but I said, look at this side, okay? Look at the, why don't we just put these both on the same chart? I said, look, can companies in general, okay, are there, again, are there some companies that have overextended themselves? Yes. If you go back and look at what happened in those very early quarters of COVID, there are companies that got access to abundant cheap capital, Okay? And they, they've come out, they haven't been productive, they have not generated income, they haven't generated uh, profits, they're having a harder time. But right now, right, companies as a whole, their net worth has never really been higher, okay? and their net worth, their capacity to pay is relatively healthy. Now, what you'll see, when costs go up, there, there are fewer projects they will take on. Right, if it costs 5%, 6%, 7% to borrow, something that may have been profitable at 2% is no longer, I do expect you will see a slowdown in business investment here in the short to intermediate term, okay? Uh, that is one of the things that people are looking at as a potential slowdown to economic growth. But again, are we sitting here on the precipice of an 0809? Uh, the answer to me is, is absolutely not. Who has handled their finances the worst? This may not come as a surprise to you, but it's the U.S. government, right? We just finished fiscal year 2023. For us, we have our calendar year, January through December. The government's year goes from October 1 to the end of September, okay? And so they finished fiscal year 2023 at the end of September, and we ran a $2 trillion-plus deficit. We spent over $2 trillion more than what we brought in uh, in revenues, and we did that at a time where the cost of every dollar that we borrow has risen. And so what we've seen is the cost of servicing the debt, how much of every dollar of U.S. production has to go back at, at, to pay for things that we've already spent on. How much of it has to get taken away from the entrepreneurs, the innovators, from investment in new capital, from investment in education? How much do we have to take away from that? To, to pay for something that we already did in the past, that number has been on the rise. And that, again, it is a burden for growth. Over time, okay, I believe that the more we have to spend on these types of payments, it takes away from the capital that's available for human ingenuity. This number, as you can see, rose in the 1970s. It did lead to a political shift. Okay, that is one of the, the, the key things is in the 70s, people got frustrated, they got fed up. As there was more and more discussion on what does this mean for Social Security, are we going to be able to continue to pay our bills, does this put the U.S. at risk uh, in terms of being the world's reserve currency? The answer to right now is no. I don't think the U.S. dollar is at any risk. I think our private property rights, our rule of law, our freedom and democracy, uh, the republic is the single best environment for human ingenuity on the face of this earth. 
But but uh, this this uh, what we saw was a pushback from voters, and they said, "Look, you in Washington, you need to be responsible." You need to pay attention to deficits. You need to pay attention to spending. We need to be responsible with the, the, the resources that we have. And it led to a 16-year shift, a, a focus in Washington mandated by voters, get your fiscal house in order. And I do think over the next 10 to 15 years, you're going to see more push from voters. I think we'll start to see it with these elections that are upcoming. Um, and, and so that can we turn this thing over? Can we, does this have to be a runaway ship where we're just spending more and more and more and we're constantly running deficits that puts us deeper and deeper into debt? We don't have to do that, okay? But, but we need to put some pressure on Washington to control the spending side of the equation. The thing that drives us over time, the thing that ultimately propels us, because we've spent massively in the past, we did it for World War II, we did it with entitlement spending in the 1970s, we've always had to find ways to generate the revenue, to generate the resources, to pay for what we've done and to continue to grow. And what I want to end in, in talking about in a couple slides is really what I, I spend more of my time focused. I spend less of my time focused on uh, what economic report came out this morning or what geopolitical event is happening today or this week. Because if you look back through history, those are temporary events. And sometimes they lead the markets to go up, sometimes they lead the markets to go down. But human ingenuity, the unleashing of human potential, has been the critical driver of prosperity over time. And if you want to see the prosperity that we've generated, the advances we've made over the last 20 years, I said, you know what, here we are in November, we got Thanksgiving coming up. To give you an example, let's go Black Friday shopping, okay? So I want you to come Black Friday shopping with me right now. I've brought us an ad. So we got a couple things we can look. Now you'll notice this ad is not from this year. In fact, this ad is from 1999. And there are some unbelievable deals on here, okay? You have this Memorex three pack of cassettes for $6.99, but there was a mail-in rebate. If you sent that in, completely free. They had 99 cent Kodak film for your camera. They limited the number that you were able to get because everybody wanted the film for their camera. Uh, we had this amazing VHS camcorder with a color viewfinder. And then, man, a five-disc CD changer. No more getting up to switch out that CD. Okay, no more. When, you, when you're changing the holiday music, now you got your remote, you can sit back. I mean, this was, these were unbelievable devices that we were all excited about at that time. But the two biggest, the two biggest deals that people were focused on that year was this 25-inch TV for $249.99. You got a 25-inch Sanyo tube television. And if you really got lucky, if you stayed in line, if you got the deal, you got this guy, the 999.99 computer, okay? And this computer was connecting us with people from around the world. It was, it was connecting the world in new ways. It was giving us access to technology in ways that we hadn't seen before, okay? And this, check out the specs on this thing. It is mind-blowing. This thing had 16 megabytes of memory. It had a 2.1 gigabyte hard drive. It had a 14 inch tube monitor. And if you plugged it into this bad boy right here, okay, you got 56K internet. You also got some speakers, a printer, and this sticker, okay? This is what you got in 99 because they said, look, turn off your computer before midnight. We have no idea what's gonna happen on 1231.99. Maybe this computer you bought doesn't work anymore, but you know, we'll see. Now we look back, if you remember 20, 20 something years before COVID was Y2K, 
This is what we were worried about. These are the tools that we had at our disposal. If you think about what we did during COVID, our capacity to have the world come to us, our capacity to connect with each other, to have meetings like this where we could communicate, even if we're in different cities, different states, even different countries, right? Our, our capacity to do what we did was not there 20 years earlier. Now let's compare to where we are today. Here's another Black Friday ad. Now we don't have the Memorex uh, film. We don't have the VHSs. We don't have the film from Kodak. We don't have the five disc CD changer or the camcorder. I could argue that we have all of those in this single device that we all seem to carry around with. In fact, I've got two of these things, right? I've got two phones, because I got one for work, one personal. I got two iPads, I got my iWatch, right? You, you think about this, this phone that we carry around with us now has more storage capacity. We can film more video than those tapes in higher quality. We can take more pictures in higher quality. We don't have a five disc CD changer. We can have hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of artists, music, stream directly. I watched my church service. I, I was out. I had uh, a sinus infection over the weekend. I streamed my church's church service from the comfort of my family. It is, it is unbelievable. And this 199 device replaces all of those pieces. And we, we, we don't even go, you don't buy them anymore because very few places need them. Now, what about the two major items? The 249.99 TV, we got it again. This time for $249.99, you're not getting a 25-inch tube TV. This is a 65-inch 4K ultra-high-definition smart TV. Okay, so you can stream Netflix, Hulu, Disney, whatever it is, you can stream it directly to this device. It's gotten bigger. The technology has gotten cheaper. Think about what this means internationally. We have, in the U.S., we tend to be on the front lines of technology. We tend to be innovators. We've got the capacity to do that, the education to do that. And we bring to the world new technologies, and then we uh, produce them and produce them and produce them, and we drive down their cost. We drive down the, the, the price needed to pay for it. We make them more accessible. We share it with the world. And now you've got places all across the world who 20 years ago, had uh, the TV was an absolute luxury, and now they have access to technologies. Again, if you wanted to get a 65-inch flat screen TV back in the year 2000, if you could even find one, somebody that made it, they cost over $10,000. And now they're everyday uh, devices. But let's get to the big dog, okay? I could not find a 999 computer in Price is Right style. I didn't want to go over, right? So here's the closest one I could find, a 799 laptop. Now, it does not have 12 megabytes of memory. This one has, or 16 megabytes. This one has 12 gigabytes of RAM. It doesn't have 2.1 gigabytes of hard drive. This one has 512 gigabytes of hard drive. Doesn't have a 14-inch tube TV, uh, tube monitor. It has a 15-inch built-in screen, and it has built-in Wi-Fi. And this is where it gets really exciting, because that 56K modem that we had back in 2000, where are we today? Well, I'm, I'm just outside Chicago, okay? So I'm going through our Chicago. You can see I'm in my office. This morning I ran this, and my download speed was 635.97 megabytes. We are processing technology today 95,000 times faster. We process more information today in an hour than we were processing in a month 20 years ago. And this, this you, add, you, you take that and you add it with this. Okay, and this is the last slide. 
But I want you to stop and think about this because when you stop and you think about it, it is, it is spectacular. It is, uh, I think, provides so much hope. Up until 1963, okay, up until 1963, at no point in human history, at no point in human history had more than half of the world's adult population been literate. Now, back in 1963, the global population was about 3.1 billion. Right now, this one goes through 2019, if I look at 2023 numbers, okay, we just exceeded 8 trillion, or 8 billion, no, trillion, what am I doing, wait, no, billion, 8.1, 8 billion people, okay, and we are at about 90%, 90% global adult literacy. What does that mean when you see not just the rise in the percent of people who can read and have access to information, who can learn from those who came before them? who now have the capacity to connect, and you go to places like Bangladesh, and they have, in, in places, they've got these devices before they have electricity in their homes. They, they take these, they go down to the train station, they plug into the, the uh, electrical power there, they get onto the Wi-Fi, and they have better access to information than the President of the United States had at his fingertips 20 years ago today. And when I look out in the world, and, and, and we have been blessed, God has blessed us, with so, a, a diverse set of talents, with diverse sets of resources in different countries, in different places, we're at different stages. We are unleashing human potential, the capacity to use those gifts at a way that the world has never seen. There are more people today that can read and learn from what came before them than there were total people on the earth 50, 60 years ago. Now, I think what we need to do is, is, is continue the, the progress that we're making in improving literacy, improving sanitation, improving access to health, improving access to nutrition. We are doing incredible things. We are using those tools. We're using the resources that have been put down in front of us. We need to continue to use those uh, respectfully. We need to continue to use those resourcefully. And quite honestly, I think we'll do it. As we go into this holiday season, Turn on the TV and they're going to tell you about, hey, did the Fed get it right? Did the Fed get it wrong? We're going to hear about, you know, frustrations on next year's in election year. Why, and half the people are going to say, if that person gets elected, I'm going to Canada. And then the other side says, no, no, no. If that person gets elected, I'm going to Canada. There's going to be so many things that can rile us up, that can make us frustrated, that can move the markets in the short term. Let's never lose sight of what progresses us over time. Let's take these, these times during Thanksgiving to look around, to look at the health that we've got with our families, the resources we've been provided, the roofs over our head, the air conditioning, the, 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 the uh, amount of food that we have available to us, the choices in food we have available. We live in a spectacular world, an absolutely magnificent world. Uh, and, and, you know, let's never lose sight of that. You've listened to an, okay, I, I think I just talked for about a half hour, which is usually longer than most people want to listen to an economist. So why don't I do this, John Mark, why don't I pass it back to you? Are we, do we have time to do any questions? Yeah, we've got about 20 minutes for any questions. If you have a question for Andrew, why don't you put that in the chat and we'll start reading those off. So while we collect those questions, Andrew, I'm gonna hit you up with uh, a few. Uh, and one yeah. of the things that you talked about uh, earlier, which has been a theme of ours as a firm is we are, bullish, extremely bullish on 
India as a nation, as a country, as an investment theme uh, and yeah. extremely bearish on China. Uh, things you talked about, like demographic trends being a, a major driver, the literacy rate of India continuing to just skyrocket because of smartphones getting in the hands, like you said, of people before before they even right. get electricity at their, you know, where they live. Um, maybe speak to that a little bit more in terms of the research you guys have done or, or just your thought process around. Um, I, I, I tend to tell people I'm not worried about China as a military threat to be a, to be a military threat. You have to be an economic threat. And their one child right. policy decimated the family in China, which, again, goes back to all this biblical worldview stuff. And now it's very normal to never get married in China because so many of your uh, adult friends are not married because there's a lack of people to marry. Uh, especially, yeah. you know, females because of the the uh, you know the, the the emphasis on on males in their culture. So all that to say, yeah. I'd love to hear your thoughts on and India. Yeah, so so India is the rising power right now. They are one. They have the population growth, right? Two. Uh, they have some remnants from the time that, that Britain was there uh, with that private property rights, rule of law, kind of functioning democracy. Are there some problems? Do we have issues with things like the caste system? Yes, but. Uh, they are a much freer country than China. I think freedom is so critically important. The freedom to invent, the freedom to explore, the freedom to try things and get them wrong. One of the biggest issues I believe that China's had, right, is the way that the Communist Party has done things from a top-down perspective. If you pick three, four people, uh, or, or even 10 people that may be incredibly smart and say, hey, you tell us what everybody else is supposed to do, right? I think we are overstating our own capacity to understand the world around us. I think by, by opening that up and allowing people, again, to use their very diverse gift sets, uh, India is the leader in that space right now. And they're going to see, I think, the economic growth. You're seeing a lot of countries right now are shying away from China. They were doing this before COVID um, because China's had this misunderstanding of the word copyright. They thought copyright meant the right to copy. Um, it, was a, it was just a miscommunication there. They said, look, if, you're, if we're going to play on a, on a global stage, we have to be fair in terms of how we process, how we share uh, information. You need to be respectful of the rights that other people have. And, and now people are stepping away from China. They're stepping away from Russia. Uh, the Middle East is feeling more of the pressures, and they're going towards the places where, as we're in this kind of tech-heavy uh, world where innovation flourishes. And I think you've talked in the past, I know you had a blog post that I loved about a month ago, looking at a place like Israel, right? Israel has a lot of that freedom. They've got the tech center. They don't have the same population that India has, but that's the path that India is moving towards. It's if you give people the opportunity to advance, if you give people the opportunity to grow, if you, in, if you, if you give them the capacity to learn and to explore, that freedom leads to prosperity. And it, 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 India is going to be a major story over the next 10, 20, 30 years. The U.S., well, we've got that aging population with the 55 and older. In the next decade or so, there's going to be some headwinds on, on uh, employment growth. But the biggest groups, that, there's big groups that are coming through. Total population is going to continue to grow. And our, our working age population relative to the retired population, which was the big issue Japan had, China has, that you had a smaller group trying to support a much, much larger group that wasn't prepared for retirement, we're in a different situation from that. Uh, and India is in a different situation from that. How quickly they grow, how quickly they surpass China on economic strength is going to be dependent on how much they embrace the free trade, how much they embrace 
the capacity to learn from others, to work with others. Uh, time will tell, but they are, they are a very exciting area. Vietnam is also uh, exciting what they're doing. I think South Korea's had some stuff that's been pretty exciting. China's now, they're no longer our biggest trade partner. For a long, long time, they were number one. They're down to number three right now. Okay, Canada and Mexico, our neighbors to the north and to the south, have overtaken them, and Japan is another one that's, that's kind of coming in. So demographics matter a lot. Um, freedom matters a ton for the drivers of prosperity over time. You can dictate how to do things well for the short term, but there's no, we, we, history has shown us you, you, you can't pivot when you're not allowing groups to bring things to the table. It's really, really hard to do. Yeah, yeah no doubt. Okay, so we've got a question from Brent here. He, he asks, how is the Fed going to get to that 2% inflation target that they're, they're trying to hit uh, when most employers are paying their employees well above what they did before COVID? Now, of course, last Friday, uh, we got the uh, wage gain numbers from uh, the Labor Department, and those mm-hmm. were trending down, but still at 4% uh, year over mm-hmm. year, a little over 4%. So um, there's definitely a lot more wage gain happening than the 2% target from inflation that they want. So what are your thoughts on that, how employers will be able to, uh, or how the the Fed will be able to get 2% inflation if employers are having to continue to pay their employees more and more and more? Yeah, no, and so that's that's the problem they've got right now. Now, remember, even if they're paying people more today than they were pre-COVID, the question is, does it continue to grow at a certain pace? You could be up 10, 15, 20% from where you were in 2019, but if that number starts to level off, let's say you know, we start to get more employees in, let's say that we start to produce more. Here's the thing is, is if you, um, you know, here, I'm gonna go to a white screen. Let's imagine for a world, do you wanna understand inflation? Here's, here's an analogy I've used in the past for how do we kind of even these things out. Imagine we lived in a world that only had two things, okay? It's got $10 and it's got 10 apples. Okay, we're gonna make these the apples. In this world with $10 and 10 apples, how much is an apple gonna cost? Well, they're gonna even out, it's gonna be about a dollar per apple. What happens when you add more money to the system? If you add 14 or you add $4, right? This is essentially what happened in the US. Money in the system grew by about 40%. If you've got $14 and 10 apples, what's gonna happen to the price of an apple? Well, the price of an apple is gonna go up to $1.40 per apple. Now, the question is, if, if you get to $1.40 per apple, okay, and you don't add any more money to the system, if you don't add any more apples, once you've absorbed that 40%, you're not gonna keep seeing the price go up, right? You have to keep adding money or you have to take away growth for that inflation to continue. It rises to the point where the money's been absorbed and then it kind of stops. The other thing you could do though, is like if you increase output, if you got to $14 and 14 apples, right? It's the same situation as 10 and 10. So there's, there's two ways we can kind of move that the Fed can look to see inflation brought into check. One is to limit the amount of new money in the system. And they are trying to do that right now. That's the point of higher rates is if you, if you raise rates to 8% to buy a house and fewer people buy homes, you're dampening demand. That's the idea is, is you're going to see less loans created, less new money creation in the economy. And so we're limiting that dollar side of the equation. We're still growing the apples. And if, the more you can unleash prosperity, the more you can push the Apple side, that helps to ultimately absorb. There is a question of will they get to 2%. That is the Fed's stated goal, and people have asked them, do you have to get down? What's the reasoning behind 2%? Which, if you ask that, it's, it's actually a very funny answer. Uh, when I was doing my, my study at Northwestern, my head economics professor was the director of microeconomic research for the Chicago Federal Reserve. Um, and I asked him, I'm like, Professor Aronson, Dr. Aronson, why 
Like, what's the, the, the technical background on this? What's the academic research? And he said, well, the reason we have 2% is because it's not zero. And I'm like, that's, wait, what, what, what else? And he's like, well, the thing is we don't want deflation, and 2% sounded like it's enough above zero that we could miss by a little bit and not be seeing deflation. And I'm like, so there's no real strong, hard evidence that 2% is the right number, but they're committed to it right now. I don't think they're going to move on that for the next six to 12 months. As inflation's coming down, they're going to say, nope, we're focused on 2%, 2%, let's allow it to come down. As we get closer, I would not be uh, surprised at all to see them adjust that and say, you know what, maybe two and a half is the right number, maybe 3%. They don't want to do it right now because their concern is if they change it now, one, they've lost credibility, well, inflation is still much higher. But the second thing is they're worried it's going to push uh, the long end of interest rates higher because people are going to price in more inflation. So will we get to 2%? I mean, you could make an argument that what we see here at that very end in those last slides, what we see with technology, which has become so central, has also become deflationary. You get more for less. This has been one of the major reasons I believe that inflation has been closer to 2%, 1.5% over the decade before COVID is because we use more and more of the computers, more and more of the tools that for the same price or less, we were getting more power, more production out of it. So maybe a little bit of a long-winded answer on that one, but can we get down to 2%? Yes. It's going to be a combination of slower borrowing and more production. That, I think, can ultimately get us there. Yeah. And of course, uh, Microsoft and, and OpenAI announced today that uh, they're releasing ChatGPT4. And so maybe that's one of the strongest arguments for productivity gains is the artificial intelligence play that's out there to really improve productivity, increase the Apple to four or 14, yeah, excuse it could. me, uh, and, yeah. and get, that, get that inflation back down to zero. I've, yeah. I've often thought that as well. The best explanation, or around 2% inflation, the best explanation I've ever heard for that is when you get above two, the standard deviation starts to become a lot more variable. And so you start to see a much milder swings if you would say three is our target, whereas two, you know, the, the standard deviation on that it keeps it pretty tight. Um, sure. So next question uh, is one that you probably get quite a bit. Um, it's uh, from Scott. And Scott says uh, he's one of these people that really, and he, he emphasizes really, he really needs to be able to refinance his mortgage. How long is he going to have to wait for mortgage rates to come down? And, and also, then when will you start to see the, the um, gas, food, the, the volatile parts of, uh, of um, uh, inflation start to come down? Of course, from a mortgage rate perspective, last week, we finally, finally saw those plateau last week after weeks and weeks of increasing up to about 7.8. So what are your thoughts on where rates are going to go and how long people will have to wait for lower mortgage rates and or uh, other expenses? So, I, you know, are we going to get back down to that 3% range, 35 4% range that we were at on the 30-year mortgages? Uh, that's going to take a little bit of time to get down there. What I, so with, with the inflation number, if we just take the headline inflation number, with that number turning, and if the Fed says, look, we're not, we're not going to hike again from here, right now their base case expectation is that they're cutting next year. And I do believe they probably will cut next year. I think they'll cut a couple times in 2024 in relation to a slowdown from the economic side. Uh, I, I do believe that the higher rates are starting to flow through the system. They're starting to be felt by companies. So, you know, we've, we've, we've seen this rodeo before. If you go back to 1978 to 1981, right, when you think about housing, this has been a major impact on the housing front, and it, it impacted people's 
thoughts on should I buy, should I move. From 78 to 81, people got locked in because the rates moved up so high. And it wasn't until after 81 when the rates started to come back down that we started to see a re-engagement with, uh, with mortgages and the, the refinancing activity started to, to move. I don't know if we're going to be there by the capacity, depending on where you're at right now with rates. I think rates on 30-year mortgages will be on the downtrend throughout much of, if not the entirety of 2024, uh, but I don't think we're going to be back down to four or below. I think that's going to take us longer, and you're probably going to see, quite honestly, what you see with a lot of these data is there's there's kind of re-accelerations along the way. I don't have the chart in here right now, but if you look at, you know, the 1970s and the 1980s, the Fed started, the Fed rose rates, and then they started to cut, but then they thought maybe they were cutting too fast, so they rose again, and they didn't go as high as they were, but it was a, it was a bit choppy on the way down as they tried to, to navigate that landing. Starting next year, expect rates to start trending lower. Energy, you know, when are you going to see it on gas and gas flows through to food, right, because it all has to get transported? Um, it's a really hard question. If you go back to last year with Russia and Ukraine, people were saying, oh, well, there's no way we're ending the year with oil under $200 a barrel. And it shot up as people said, hey, this is going to, you know, really kill everything. And then as we realized, okay, it was going to be a little bit of a milder winter, and we were able to get some nat gas transported around, it brought those oil prices into check. That, uh, doing the oil forecasting, it's not my forte. It's a really hard area to make a reliable forecast over time. I look at the general inflation. How many dollars are still in the system to be absorbed? I think we still have about 5% inflation, 7% inflation that still needs to get brought in. And if the Fed keeps rates where they're at, as we move through next year, they're going to be kind of closing up that gap and can start the cut process. Perfect. So hold on, Scott. Sometime next year, maybe, <laughs> for some lower mortgage rates. And uh, we've also got a question from Matthew. Um, so student loans have just restarted for much of the country. And uh, to your, your chart earlier, student loans, while not the predominant debt that's out there today, it is a, it is a debt that indiscriminately fit, uh, you know, hits younger and, and more emerging uh, affluent individuals. Uh, but any comments you have on the um, impact that that's going to have on the economy as those uh, payments start to uh, take away cash flow from the, you know, services, good spending that people might do? Yeah, so here's the way I would look at that. So if you look here, I just brought up the consumption chart again. You've got about $12 trillion in services consumption. You've got about five trillion. Combined, this is about $17 trillion in spending. If we look at uh, total student loan payments that get made, because the amount of debt outstanding is different, obviously, from the amount of payments they have to make on a monthly basis. If you total up the monthly payments, um, it's equal to about $150 billion. So it's not, you know, 17 trillion, you're talking about 0.15 trillion that comes out of that. Is it, is it enough to really move the needle on total spending? Even if, even, if all, even if nobody was paying anything and there were people that were still making payments and there was some of that, there was private loans that still had to be paid, right? But it's, it's a very small portion of total consumption, total consumer spending. Where I would expect to see it impact is a little bit of a slowdown on leisure and hospitality and a little bit on things like restaurants. Some of those, some of those groups, this is areas where if you look at their, their essentially banks release data and say, here's where the people who have student loan payments, here's where their money flows are going each and every month. Um, some of it was going into those spaces. I would expect to see some pullback there. So some sectors, some industries might feel some pullback, but the resumption of student loan payments as a whole 
from an overall economic uh, standpoint is, is very minimal. Yeah, perfect. And last question here, Andrew, to wrap it up. Um, the, the mother of all questions is uh, to start this year, 2023, it was uh, recession is coming. It's here. Uh, now, I would point out on our video series, uh, we were very adamant that we didn't see it. Not that we're economists, but uh, we look at the data and just try to interpret it. We didn't see it. Um, but what are your thoughts on recession 2024? And uh, is it going to come? Is it going to be soft, hard, or uh, we're going to bypass it altogether? Right. Yeah, are we going to see that recession? It's been six months away for 18 months. Um, <laughs> As I look at it today, with what we're seeing right now with some slowdown on business investment, um, some slowdown on consumption, just general, and it's not, it's not massive declines. It's kind of a flattening out as rates have gotten higher. The NBER, National Bureau of Economic Research, is the group that makes the final determination for the U.S. on whether or not there was a recession. I wouldn't be surprised if we see what they determine is a recession early in 2024. But when they do that, I expect it's going to be one of the shallowest recessions we've ever seen, um, akin to like a 90-91, where economic growth goes largely flat. Uh, consumption can actually grow through this. I think the area that's really going to be the central piece is the slowdown in business investment. But we could completely avoid it as well. We could just see a slowdown in economic growth, kind of a stalling out, but stay modestly positive. The way we're seeing it, which is kind of prolonging this, is that we're seeing recessions go through different sectors at different times, right? So while one sector is seeing a slowdown and manufacturing seeing it right now, it's being offset by what's happening on the service side. And if we see a slowdown in, in you know, retail office space and spending by some corporations, it may, it's getting offset. So it's, when I think recession, it's, it's, it's not a deep, it's not a, from my viewpoint, I don't see a hard landing. I don't see an 0809, I don't see a 2020 type recession, um, but I do see it kind of stalling stalling until we get our gears reset, our legs strongly underneath us, and, and can progress on stronger footing, in which case, then we're off to the races, and I think we can see a sustained period of growth. Yeah, perfect. Well, Andrew, I can't thank you enough for joining us and our clients on uh, today's uh, webinar. You are one of the best, and uh, your team there at First Trust are one of the best, certainly great partners to us, and uh, no, no doubt why uh, the conglomerate of financial advisors voted you guys as some of the best uh, material to share with clients, because ultimately that's what clients you know, are looking to us for is what's, what's happening and how do I interpret it? And then how do I uh, implement that in my financial life? So thanks so much for joining us today, Andrew. We really appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. God bless. Yeah. Thank you. And if you have any follow-up questions after this webinar, feel free to reach out to your financial advisor or you can go to our website and chat with us. We'd be more than happy to answer any of your questions. But for now, thanks so much. We'll look forward to seeing you next week on What We Learned in the Markets this week.